Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Edith Sheffer on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Burned Bridge, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. If this book has any single lesson, it's that dividing a country is not as easy as you might think. You don't just draw a line and tell people this is the border. For in order for a border to be a border, it has to be recognized as such. And what Edith shows is that the residents of Neustadt and Sonneberg, these being two towns situated quite close to one another in the American and Soviet zones of occupation, respectively, didn't know whether the border was really a border. And if it was a border, what kind of border it would be, they had to figure it out. Edith does a wonderful job of telling us how they did so. Now, of course, there were two other parties involved, the American and the Soviet occupation forces. They, too, had a great interest in the border. And Edith does a nice job of showing how their interests were at once similar and quite different. They were similar in the sense that both of them wanted order on the border, and both of them wanted the border to be where they thought it should be. This was the cause of cooperation on the one hand and conflict on the other. The Soviets, however, also had another general aim, and that was to remake what would be East German society. And judging by what Edith says, they were brutal in this attempt. Now, of course, it's easy to explain immediately after the war why they would treat the Germans and their control very badly. And they did treat them very badly. But they continued to abuse them as they imported, again with East German help, Stalinism. And this caused the residents of Zonneburg even more pain. And, of course, the residents of Zonneberg began to flee. Actually, they began to flee immediately after the war, and they continued to do so. And this was very embarrassing for the Soviets, which made them, in turn, even more brutal. All in all, this is sort of a sad story. But I should say a very interesting one, and one that is very well documented by Edith in Burned Bridge. I enjoyed talking to Edith today, and I hope that you liked the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Edith. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm just great. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Today we have Edith Sheffer on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, 
Burned Bridge, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. The book just won the Frankel Prize for Modern European History. That recommends it highly. But even more importantly, I recommend it highly. I don't know if that's more importantly or not. But I have read the book, and I found it extraordinarily interesting. One of the things Edith is able to do that I'm very envious of is actually talk to people who are there. Uh, they are still alive, and I, I think that's very interesting. I, my own work is medieval and early modern, so all my folks are dead, and I, I can't ask them any questions, even if, even in my imagination, really. So uh, she uses interviews to, to great effect in this book, and also she has some, I think, very interesting and revisionist things to say. I usually don't use that word because I think things are called revisionist that actually aren't. Uh, but in this case, she, she shows uh, how there was, uh, I, I don't know if collaboration is the right word, but uh, a lot of people were involved in making the division if we can call it that, between what became East and West Germany, not just the Soviets and the East Germans. And she kind of gets into the nitty-gritty details of this, how it was worked out on the ground, uh, as a reporter might, I think, even. And, and I, I very much admired that part of the book. So, Edith, I want to say congratulations on the book and the award and all the other accolades I'm sure that you're collecting. You probably have an accolade room at your house, <laughs> right? <Don't> you? <laughs> anyway, not so exactly, that, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, a trophy room. That's what it would be called. Yeah. So the, uh, 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 tell us a little bit, uh, begin the interview by t- telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very pleased to, to be speaking with you today. I, um, I am a assistant professor at Stanford university, having studied German history since college and, um, very early on developed this fascination with how, um, quickly transitions have happened in the 20th century. So did a bit of work on German diaries in college. And then um, after college, lived in Russia, studying the history of the Soviet Union in Germany, and then went to Berkeley for my PhD, um, where I began my academic career in earnest. Mm-hmm. And who did you study with there? I, was, I went to that program many years ago, back when dinosaurs walked the earth. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I um, worked with Jerry Feldman, oh, who Jerry, passed yeah. away in, yeah. in 2008. Yeah, and um, I was actually his last student. Oh. So it was wonderful to have the opportunity to work with him. And mm-hmm. then um, John Connolly, who mm-hmm. is you know, a specialist in Central and Europe. East. I, know, I know John very well, actually. Yeah, yeah. and then um, Peggy Anderson, of course, as well. Don't know Peggy, but I know John very well. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. I do. I think he may and have slept then, on uh, my couch once. I can't really recall I'd, something like that. Anyway, and then uh, Robert Mueller also wound up on my committee from UC Irvine. I see. I don't know. Really I, don't know. I don't know Robert, yeah. but I bet they're very proud of you. Very pleased <laughs> with your with your book and everything else. So tell tell us why you landed on this specific topic. And the topic is, of course, uh, sort of the negotiation and creation of this this border uh, between both East Germany and West Germany. But you have a particular case, and that's sort of what makes the the book um, really very interesting. Uh, that that you have this sort of, I, I think of it as like a natural experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you have two Petri dishes. <laughs> yeah. You say go. But um, what's interesting is that the project wasn't going to be about the border at all, at all. Um, my initial idea was just to compare post-war development in the American zone and the Soviet zone of occupation. And um, so I wanted to find two places that were similar and trace things like education or religion or denazification. And, um, so that, that was my initial intention. And then, um, 
a cousin of mine sent us an atlas as a wedding present. Mm -hmm. And literally upon opening it, I was looking at the map of of Germany and saw the former border and saw these two towns that were on top of each other right on the former border Mm -hmm. and and thought to myself, gee, these places must be similar. This must be really interesting. And so these two towns are Zonneberg, right? Zonneberg. And Neustadt. And Neustadt. Okay, um, Zonneberg is in the it's it's the one in East Germany, right? Yes. yes. And then Neustadt, Neustadt is in, to, ends up in West Germany. Okay. Yeah, and um, Neustadt is in Bavaria, and Zonneberg is in Thuringia. And mm-hmm. um, so Neustadt went to the Americans in 1945, and Zonneberg to the Soviets. And as I said, my initial idea was to look at changes in local government and how basically life in the two occupation zones differed. And both to me and my advisors. We didn't even think the border would be worth a chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, we just sort of took it to be a static construct the way most people have, that mm-hmm. this was just there. This was a fact of life and um, life happened around it. But then when I actually got to the places and started talking with people, it became clear just how fluid um, and haphazardly this thing was constructed. Mm-hmm. So then that became the entire story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, one of the interesting thing in the book, and I and I, uh, this really sort of jumped out at me, is that there's a, a, a field of, of um, borderland studies, isn't there? I'm not wrong uh, about this. Yeah, there, uh, outside of Germany. Yeah, just or, in general, yeah. it's like uh, we oh, have. A, I have a colleague here who, you know, that's 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 his uh, that's his field. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Border studies has really grown in the last, I'd say, fifteen, twenty years. It's, yeah. it's a it's a major field. But interestingly, the um, inner German border outside of the Berlin Wall Berlin, yeah. is curiously very understudied. This is um, really the, the first social history of the Iron Curtain that mm-hmm. spans the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a number of studies currently underway and being completed. But um, up until now, this has really mm-hmm. been an unexplored topic. Mm-hmm. I think one of the difficulties here with the popular imagination of this border is this meta this Churchillian metaphor of an iron curtain because oh. it really wasn't anything. I don't know if you ever crossed the border to Mexico or Canada. It's yeah. there's nothing really border like about those things. I, right. um, they're sort of borders, kind of, but they're not. You know, they're they're really uh, yeah. They're although that's changing. That is changing. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, but changing. it's hard. I mean, you can see how hard it is, and this is sort of one of the themes of your book. I mean, dividing dividing countries is is hard. And yeah. uh, because yeah, women is hard for a lot of different reasons. So let's actually um, talk a little bit about the book. Tell us a little bit about the history of these two places, Zonneberg and Neustadt. Sure. Um, so these um, two towns are about a millennium old, and they were connected by um, <clears throat> a short stretch of road, which is actually called Burned Bridge. So that's the the origin of the title, Gleinsbrücke uh, in German, and um, this stretch of road was built out of logs that were burned so that they wouldn't rot in the marshy terrain. Mm-hmm. And um, this became a toll station um, starting as early as in the 1100s. And um, these two towns grew up around the toll station, and um, it was it was part of the trade route from Nuremberg to Leipzig, and so it, it saw a lot of traffic. And um, slowly these towns began crafting um, toys and utensils for these travelers that would come through. And so they, the toy industry developed into quite a strong presence in these places. Mm-hmm. And um, relations between the towns were very friendly. There was competition, of course, between, you know, merchants on either side. But um, on the whole, they were very similar 
and really entwined. And um, people spoke the same dialect. They cooked the same dishes. They intermarried. It was it was really a very cohesive region. Yeah, I mean, this is what's sort of wonderful about it in terms of a natural experiment is you can hold all these other factors equal because they were all. I mean, I, I think if I recall correctly, they're all almost all Protestants. Oh yeah, ninety five percent. Right, almost all yeah. Protestants. You know, they basically are uh, similar socioeconomically. They have similar industries in them. Uh, there seem to be a lot to divide them there. I want to say they're yeah. sister or brethren cities or something in like the true sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's an, it's an interesting place also from, um, the 20th century history perspective because they were hit extremely hard after World War One economically. Nazism came very early and very strongly to the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the majority of people were voting for the Nazi party by their ascension to power. 50, percent in the towns themselves and then 60 percent in the surrounding regions, which mm-hmm. is over the national average. So, I mean, it, it, it's interesting from that perspective mm-hmm. as well that these, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did they fare during the Second World War? Um, you know, they emerged relatively unscathed. Um, in the, they'd really been suffering after World War One, and then um, as sort of reward for their early support for National Socialism, they both gained these you know, state-of-the-art factories, um, and then were producing um, through World War II. They actually had a labor shortage. They opened, they requested slave labor. They received a lot of it. They opened two concentration camps, um, mm-hmm. satellite camps of Buchenwald um, that were pretty nasty places. They each housed about 500 um, Jews, about 20 of whom would be dying every month. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these these. Yeah, but to ordinary people in these towns, um, bombing was very light. Um, and they, I mean, there was the joke, right, that everyone says Germans have, but it really was true in these places. Enjoy the war, for the peace will be terrible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so how, how did the peace come? Who, who showed up? Who occupied these places at first? And, uh, and how, was the, how was the border or the, the line first established? Sure. So the um, hostilities were pretty well ended by the time the Americans arrived in April. And um, in fact, Sonneberg um, surrendered the town by phone. American <laughs> <laughs> unit called ahead and, um, you know, two hapless people like lower officials. Yeah, just surrendered by phone. So, I mean, you, uh, the, the arrival of the Americans was very peaceful. Um, people claimed that, you know, German girls were pairing off with soldiers that same night. Uh-huh. Um, and then it wasn't until July that um, – so both towns initially came under American hands, and it wasn't clear um, where Sonneberg was going to go or that mm-hmm. whole southern section of Thuringia. And so then in July, um, Sonneberg changed hands and Soviet troops arrived, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why people thought this, this um, military occupation would be temporary because, you know, boundaries were changing and it, it seemed like a very fluid situation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, there's a funny story about um, it was unclear. The Soviets had maps from 1920 that showed Coburg belonging to, um, you know, the same region as Sonneberg. And so they there's this, you know, anecdote. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that the Soviets and Americans um, faced off at Burn Bridge mm-hmm. that, um, they wanted to claim Neustadt for the Soviet zone. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. mm-hmm. So after the initial, um, I guess my question is this, what what did people in Sonneberg and Neustadt think uh, was going to happen? You've sort of already answered the question. Did they did they think about a permanent division of the two places or were they, 
were they sort of convinced that it was going to be temporary? What, what, what were their what were their expectations? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, definitely in the late '40s, people thought it was a temporary problem. Um, I think things were so chaotic they had to believe that it was a, yeah. a temporary problem. It was unimaginable. Um, and all, I mean, the early border, there was no early border infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I argue in the book. It was precisely the lack of infrastructure, which then, then um, drove the impetus for local people to demand more and more. So the border was not a priority for either the American or Soviet military governments. Mm-hmm. Um, they were preoccupied with catching Nazis right. and and reshaping local government and getting the economy started. And so um, you had this demarcation line between the Soviet and American zone and, and the other zones too, right? The British zone, et cetera. But um, no oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happens when you have any kind of economic difference is you get smuggling, you get mass migration, um, you get crime. And then, you know, there were no American or Soviet troops to really effectively um, um, address those issues. And so then you have local people on both sides really petitioning, say, the American military government to build more outposts or to, Mm -hmm. you know, have more troops based there. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference here is important because I I think very early on, this sort of surprised me, there were obvious economic differences in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, sort of daily life between the two places. And this caused a, a lot of tension. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, almost immediately, in fact, there are differences in rations. Sonneberg had a particularly difficult time because it was really um, always oriented to the south and very tied closely um, into Bavaria. And so it lost a lot of its food supply. So very quickly, these, these places began to diverge. And in fact, as early as 1946, um, so a lot of people from Sonneberg would um, hamster, you know, there's this ter- post-war term for sort of pilfering or mm-hmm. foraging for food. Um, and they would do this on the western side of the border in Neustadt, particularly children. And because um, children could cross the border with impunity, they wouldn't get arrested. And so um, children would dress up in rags as beggars mm-hmm. um, already as early as 1946 to go begging in the West, which to me is just such a poignant expression of these stereotypes were already so entrenched that Westerners would expect Easterners to be dressed in rags and that Easterners knew that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that already this, this idea of material difference was so mm-hmm. um, accepted. Yeah. Here, here's a, a, I guess, a controversial question in a way. Uh, to what extent are the Soviets responsible for this uh, uh, growing economic difference? I mean, in the sense that, uh, as you say in the book, they treated the people in Zonenberg uh, pretty brutally. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there. I, I certainly don't mean to suggest that these differences were entirely constructed out of thin yeah. air. No, there mm-hmm. were. And, um, you know, as you know, the Soviets um, dismantled a lot of their zone's industrial capacity. Mm-hmm. This happened in Zonenberg as well. And so, you know, this big factory I was talking about that the Nazis had constructed got dismantled. And so, no, there there were absolutely objective um, material differences, as well as differences in violence. Um, you know, I mean, I go into a lot of that in the book about just young teenage boys were getting deported um, and interned in Buchenwald, um, a lot of whom perished. Um, there was just a lot of arbitrary arrest. Rape, which was endemic in the Soviet zone, was also in a special problem in this border region because of the high troop concentration. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so people in Sonnenberg were, were, were vulnerable to a variety of different acts of violence. Um, you know, incidentally, because of this lack of oversight on the border, Soviet troops could rape across the border in mm -hmm. Neustadt as well. And, um, you know, also be sort of immune from, from um, consequences in the eastern side because of this border. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What yeah, are the things? Another that, reason why if people wanted some regulation yeah, of this thing. Yeah, but one of, one of the things you mentioned in the book remind me of uh, something that North Koreans are always accused of doing. The North Koreans they'll steal into South Korea, kidnap people, and then bring oh, them yeah. back and interrogate them. And apparently, the Soviets were doing this as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, wh why did they do that? What did they want to know? Um, well, so there were a variety of reasons why why you could be abducted. Um, <laughs> Yeah, abduction was a fine art back then. Uh, there, it took a couple different forms. Um, some of the most petty that happened um, that I heard about just anecdotally and, and a couple of times in the files would be, um, you know, East German guards or Soviets would move the border markers and catch a West German um, patrolling or an, or an American patrolling, like, on the other side, sort of by tricking them. And... Um, either asking sort of a couple of questions about patrol routes or security measures um, is a serious kind of quote-unquote abduction or trading them back for like a bottle of whiskey mm -hmm. or cigarettes. That happened all the time too. Um, more serious is they were pursuing people who were um, wanted for arrest. And so, um, you know, some one of the, okay, in these de deportations of teenagers, one of these kids um, escaped to the West in, in Neustadt and, um, his abduction was then organized by four Westerners, one of whom was a city council mm -hmm. member to kind of kidnap him back across the border. And these people were paid for it by the Soviet zone. So, I mean, you, abduction really ran the gamut from this kind of haphazard, low-level intelligence, whiskey-type bargaining mm -hmm. to actual kidnapping by Westerners in the employment in employment mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. East. So. Now, the borders, one of the things I didn't realize is the border was uh, porous in an official sense, and that is the Soviets, I guess, claimed they had a right to pursue people into the American zone. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. What kind of a border do you have when you have the right to pursue people into somebody else's territory? Up to one kilometer. Yeah, I guess we're doing that in Pakistan now, but uh, never mind that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, this was disputed. The, the Americans did not accept this premise, and so this this actually became became a matter of, of um, you know diplomatic um, contention. But yeah, no, and this was one of the reasons why abduction became such a problem because you could be in a home one kilometer from the border or in a pub, and you know, all of a sudden find yourself dragged out. Mm -hmm. Now, the Soviets were also uh, shooting people who were yeah. trying to cross. Actually, pretty commonly. Yeah, and um, yeah, East German guards were doing this too, and um, some of it was just wild unruliness and um, exchanges of fire with Americans. Um, that was a big source of tension. And in fact, West German um, initial West German border police were prohibited from carrying arms mm -hmm. within a kilometer of the border, lest that they get involved in these exchanges of fire. Mm -hmm. um, German border guards were armed on the demarcation lines with the French and so in, in British zones, but you know they were dearmed on the, which created its own problems because <laughs> they couldn't defend themselves from abduction or from violence by the other side. 
But, um, yeah, no, there was a lot of shooting of um, crossers. This, unfortunately, there are no official estimates of how many people died um, along the whole border, but um, I estimate there were one to two shootings a week mm-hmm. in the region I study and maybe about, um, you know, a few dozen deaths within, mm-hmm. you know, the first year and a half after mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've also we already talked about the raping, which is uh, again yeah. particularly brutal, and even raping of children, which which is very very disturbing. I um yeah. I guess I don't really want to go into that, but uh, one question I always had was this, and it, it involves an, another thing that the Soviets did. At a certain point, they start to open the border occasionally. Now, I, the thing I can't oh. understand about this is they knew very well that prior to the um, Soviet occupation, that Germans uh, in their millions were fleeing the Soviet forces during the war. And then after the war, immediately after the war, hundreds of thousands of them fled. Why did they open the border? And what did they think was going to happen? Um, I think they achieved their objective. So um, <laughs> no, the, the events to which you're referring happened in 1949, um, mid-year. West Germany had just been officially formed and was, was holding its first federal elections. And um, the Soviet officials decided to disrupt this first federal election. They would um, hold these border events and, and open the border. And um, so this took place in Neustadt-Sonnenberg in the form of a cross-border soccer game. The border was to be the midfield line. You know, 20,000 people came. This was a major event. And after the, after the game, um, you know, the, it was on the midfield line so people could attend without having to have an interzonal pass. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, the players who were running back and forth, they needed passes. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, at the end of the game, um, the Soviet commander announced that the border would be open for the day. And, you know, 20,000 Easterners rushed across the border into Neustadt and um, spent a lot of the time, you know, visiting friends and relatives, but also bartering and shopping and really over overflowing um, in Neustadt streets. And this really did disrupt the West. The um, merchants complained that they were selling out of, you know, um, wares and foods and demanded compensation from the government. Um, and then this was so effective, in fact, that um, the Soviet zone did this a couple more times deliberately, mm-hmm. just opening the border with thousands of people rushing across and kind of overwhelming Western border forces. And um, I guess what's amazing to me about these events is that the border at this time was invisible. It was an entirely visible line, and you have these pictures of these people lined up on an invisible line with maybe one or two, you know, West German or American servicemen standing mm-hmm. there. Um, just, you know, obviously they could overwhelm them, and they did. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this was a this was a propaganda image of an American standing off, um, facing a crowd of East Germans wanting to cross with a machine gun. Mm-hmm. And, and this was the dynamic, but um, I guess what's amazing to me is for as possible as it was for these mass openings to occur, the next day border discipline would return to normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, <laughs> the question of, I mean, I guess what's less remarkable to me is that people cross as opposed to then the next day they stopped crossing. And it, it just suggests how reliant this early border was upon compliance. Yeah, I guess I just don't know if the, the, the propaganda value of uh, 20,000 um, good uh, communists 
uh, run across the uh, border to the bad capitalist West in order to buy sausage. I don't know, understand that the, the propaganda value that seems to be well, marginal. Well, you have carrying banners while they're crossing. Yeah, but no, yeah, sure. no, and yeah. this became a major problem because um, then you get sort of these spontaneous um, organized mass crossings. And so this guy, this quickly spiraled out of control. And in November and December, there were attempts that were not organized by the Soviet zone to, um, yep. to cross. And so, yeah, it spiraled out of control. But this speaks precisely to what I'm saying. There was more room for possibility to subvert this border than I think people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. perceived. But, yeah. mm-hmm. Now, did everybody come back? Yeah, yeah. And that's also what I was I had meant to say is it, it worked in the sense that Nobody was fleeing. They were just going over there. It was this carnival-esque kind of mm-hmm. atmosphere. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, no one was leaving. Why, why, did, they, why, 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 why did they come back? Oh, well, because their families and their jobs and their homes and their community. And, and also people believe the border was temporary. Yeah. And if you think about that event, what I'm describing, Americans were arresting these people for crossing. The Soviets yeah. were saying, oh, this border should be open. So And sending them back as well. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Sending them yeah. back. Yeah. Uh huh. So um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very interesting. How did the people of uh, Zonneberg and um, and Neustadt react to the declaration of uh, first um, the uh, West Germany and then East Germany? What did, what did they think of that? Um, I'm not sure they were too engaged in the you know the fine details of the you know basic law and the the administrations. I think. Um, again, people wanted to believe the situation was temporary and didn't perceive it to be as large a turning point as in retrospect it appears to have been. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think, um, especially in, in along the borderland, forty nine wasn't as much a turning point as forty eight, which was currency reform, where mm-hmm. these two towns were then put on different currencies. Yeah. That really created a sense of divergence uh-huh. more than, um, you know separate government. And then, of course, in 52, when the border took another shape. Yeah. Let's talk about 52, actually. What happens in 52? Um, So whereas the first seven years of the border's history, you could say the West played a really dominant role. Um, The dynamic in this early period we just discussed was sort of, it was not unlike the U.S.-Mexico border, where it was um, the wealthier side that was trying to keep out undocumented workers and keep out migrants. In 52, the dynamic changes because it's the East German government that decides, hey, <laughs> this border is untenable. And it was um, not about flight because flight wasn't seen as that great of a problem in 1952. Um, it was more about controlling this crime zone um, and controlling the smuggling that was happening and just creating an orderly state. And so um, in 52, you get the first um, order, and this is coming directly from Stalin to um, systematize the border regime and modeled on um, Soviet border security measures, I guess, that, that have been developed in the 20s. So you get the erection of barbed wire fences. You get the deportation of people that are deemed unreliable. Yep. And this is what I go into great depth about. Yeah, the, Soviet, the Soviets were very big on that. Yeah, they pioneered that in the 20s, basically. Anyone <laughs> that they didn't like, like the Polish nation, for example, will deport yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll move them away from the border, like hundreds of yeah. thousands of Poles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this, this was kind of a modest action in, in um, comparison, but I think it's really revealing of the underlying border dynamics. So 
um, they had wanted to deport about 10,000 people from the border regions as a whole and um, had established this five-kilometer security zone where people were supposed to be, you know, uber-reliable. And um, what's interesting, this action was um, called Action Ungetifa, which is Action Vermin, mm -hmm. is a literal translation. And um, it was very haphazardly organized, and there was a lot of room for resistance by local people when these police units came to town. And, um, you know, a lot of people escaped or protested, refused to leave. Um, some killed themselves. I mean, these were awful scenes unfolding in these towns. Um, some towns built barricades, um, assaulted the police units. And what's interesting, you know, I was looking at this whole region, and if you go through town by town, um, you know, there are 40 municipalities in the region I was studying. Um, the outcome of the deportations in each town really depended upon the extent to which a town caused trouble. Mm -hmm. So in towns that, that were really hot spots um, of, of resistance, maybe 0 to 10% of people would have actually been deported, where in towns were, that were remained pretty quiet, um, you know, most of the inhabitants who were slated for deportation were, mm -hmm. were taken. Mm -hmm. And then also what's interesting to me, too, is the role that the Western communities could play. Um, there are a couple incidents, incidents where um, Western crowds would gather and watch these deportations unfold and kind of cause a ruckus and that too um, played a large role in, in sending people on the other side to protest and really disrupting the whole um, deportation action. How, how did they, uh, how did the authorities in East Germany decide who was going to get deported? Oh, um, well, yeah, this is another thing that I think makes so clear the dynamic, um, how reliant early border securities are upon local um, involvement, local participation, because Berlin, of course, didn't know who should be deported. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this was um, left up to local officials. And um, the categories of people to be deported initially resembled sort of Third Reich um, categories of asocial and, um, you know, various political stripes. But when you look at the um, people that local officials it was often people who were known for smuggling mm -hmm. or um, border crossing or, you know, sort of petty crime, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and they relied also a lot on local denunciations and um, deportation rates really varied a lot by community mm -hmm. by how zealous and if local officials were or not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this also um, made it very clear how how involved local populations really were in the unfolding in, of this event, both in complicity and in resistance. There was just a lot of room for um, local people to determine how this thing unfolded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at that point, can we say that the border was more closed or closed? No. <laughs> so exactly, did they build fences? Did they put up barbed wire? Did they... And building fences, but it was still extremely porous. Um, I think physically in the 50s was not as different as um, the border had been physically in the 40s. Um, you know, I spoke with several people and have seen a lot of, you know, archival documentation to the same effect that kids were still crossing all the time. People were going berry picking. Oh, the border was a great place for like mushroom and berry picking because no one ever went there. Um, and, um, yeah, it's physically in the 50s, the border didn't exist as much as I would call it a living wall. And this is the term that I use um, 
this was actually invoked by the West German minister of all German questions. He wanted the borderland to be a living wall, which meant that people created it as a wall in the head and really internalized the existence of this wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was this acceptance of a wall in the head that then propelled the wall on the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the end of the 50s, um, still about a third of the border is unfenced, completely unfenced. And, um, you know, the barbed wire gets rusty and breaks easily. And as I said, physically, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Although, I mean, you are in danger of getting shot, of course. But yep. if you're local and know the patrol routes, um, there's there are ways around that. If you or I tried to do that, there would you know, be considerably more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So in addition to deporting um, suspect people, uh, I put suspect in, in quotes because mm-hmm. I don't know if they were suspect at all, but they you certainly had fallen afoul of the authorities. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, collective guilt seems to be something that goes along with communism. I, I don't know. Uh, they seem to walk hand in hand. In any event, they also, uh, surveillance does too. And uh, we've talked about um, the Stasi on this show before several times. How, how, how did they become involved in securing the border? Sure. Um, the Stasi played all kinds of roles in securing the border. And um, although, I mean, I would, one of the things I discovered in the course of this research is, um, you know, I think it's problematic to draw too hard of a line between the Stasi and the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think that's a false distinction, at least in, in, you know, the dynamic I see playing out. People really operate across a spectrum of surveillance, and um, there are a lot of petty ways in which people are involved in um, keeping track of their neighbors as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, whether or not someone works for the Stasi in some ways is really immaterial, um, because what you see in the borderland is people getting watched and reported on in a variety of different functions. You have a volunteer border helpers mm-hmm. in communities um, who receive small perks for, yeah, patrolling with the troops and wearing armbands in town and listening out for gossip. And so mm-hmm. um, the Stasi is really just one outgrowth of this. Um, the most interesting role of the Stasi, perhaps, I mean, the, the border zone was a real area of focus for them, and um, Stasi penetration could be up to one in ten people in some of these little border communities, um, to the point where Stasi officers would complain that their efficacy was really much reduced because, the, you know, everybody knew how um, intensely they were being surveilled, and so it would be very tight-lipped. But um, anyway, one of the more interesting uh roles that the Stasi played in this border region was in the western side um, and very high penetration rates there as well and um, in fact tried to recruit westerners within cross-border families so they would send people from the eastern side who they knew had very close relatives in Neustadt to you know (laughs) on their family visits recruit their brother uh, to work for the Stasi by offering them, you know, small sums of money or um, travel visas, something like that. And mm-hmm. this worked. This worked. There was um, there were a lot of Stasi operatives at work in Neustadt. Were there Western operatives in East Germany? You know, that is a great question, and I wish I could tell you the answer. Um, the files of the Bundesnachrichtendienst are mm-hmm. notoriously held under lock and key, and I, I was not able to gain access Right, to right. I know that as an Eastern Europeanist, I can say that uh, I don't know much about this, but I know that the CIA was funding um, what were really kind of guerrillas, Ukrainian guerrillas, from this area of uh, from Bavaria uh, to go and liberate Ukraine. 
I know, at least yeah. that's the story I heard. I don't know much about it. I'm sure one of our listeners knows everything about it. Uh, but yeah, yeah you know, they were I mean, dealing across the border and trying to get to Ukraine to subvert, uh, you know, Soviet power in Ukraine. So I, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, to be honest, I think anything is possible in this region. Yeah. And I can tell you the Stasi believed that the West was extremely active in the border region. And you have a lot of cases where Stasi informants are going to American CIC offices and threatening to be double agents and triple agents. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, in the 50s, this feels like a very fluid situation. I can't tell you the extent to which that's reality, right. just that the Stasi thought this was all happening. Right, so, right. Yeah. So let's move forward just a little bit to 1961, yeah. and then things change again. Yes, things change again. Things are always changing. That's the point of the book. This thing is fluid. Um so, yeah, in 1961, this is the year the Berlin Wall goes up. And, um, you know, we tend to think of the Iron Curtain dating from 1961. But, in fact, you know, my argument is that the, this is but the final and most famous act in the drama of the Iron Curtain. And so, um, 61 is the moment where the modern border begins this real effort to build a physical barrier that's um, impenetrable. And so the Berlin Wall goes up on the rest of the border. There are serious security escalations. Um, mining um, also gathers steam. And there's another round of deportations. And without going into the details of this action, just to, suffice it to say, it unfolded very differently from 1952, which to me really suggests what, how much had changed in that decade with this wall in the head that um, there was very little resistance to the deportation actions in 1961. Mm-hmm. And um, they went off very smoothly and, and without a lot of um, upheaval to the communities mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So exactly, tell us a little bit about what the border looked like after it was, mm, I want to say, militarized. Militarized. Um, well, it changed still. So in 1950, uh, 1961 to 68, you still had these barbed wire fences um, they gained concrete posts instead of wooden posts. I mean, there are these incremental changes, right? Um, more and more mining. 68 is when um, the second generation of the modern border comes into effect, and you see a real drop in the flight rate with these innovations. And then up through the 70s, you get sort of the introduction of these um, metal mesh fences, mm-hmm. which are very difficult to, um, you know, either cut or climb over or get any handholds on. You get the introduction of what are called self-firing devices, mm-hmm. which are actually fence mines, mm-hmm. but are um, extremely lethal. And, um, you know, these these proved to be very controversial and eventually have to be dismantled. But these things were put on fences. And um, I think 15% a year would be exploded by rainfalls or heavy snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that, you know, when when it stormed, um, the border troops would have to, to um, you know, take um, dismantle the electricity. And then you get a whole realm of booby traps and signal flares so that if you're walking in this prohibited zone, you could, um, you know, cross a tripwire and, and troops would be able to find you. Mm-hmm. Um, dog runs, I mean, really elaborate tech, um, measures. Um, but, I mean, the, one of the surprising things I found is that for all of this investment in technology and for as um, impermeable as the border seemed to be, it remains porous to the mm-hmm. people who live there. So how do people get through? <laughs> how do people get through? Um, well, it's the border was never as um, 
infallible as we tend to think, like uh, minefields would go rotten. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kids would throw stones into minefields to see if the mines would explode. And if they didn't, they could cross the border and buy gum and candy in the West that day. Mm-hmm. And this happened throughout the 60s even. Um, so, yeah, and people knew where fences would be rusty or et cetera, um, especially if their parents worked for the border regime. Mm-hmm. There is one case um, of a young man who um, his father worked for the Stasi. His mom cooked in the canteen for the local border troops. He grew up right next to the border, and he knew exactly how it worked. In 1982, this is the height of the minefields, border security. 1982, he crosses 23 times in six mm-hmm. months. That's 23 impressive. times with his, yeah, with his friends. And um, in... Not for any um, serious reason, because he was send he was selling um, mines to American and West German servicemen mm-hmm. in on the western side of the border, and the Stasi didn't even know he was crossing until he was arrested in the West mm-hmm. for selling border mines because mm-hmm. it was illegal to deface the border. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I, there are a lot of other. Um, crossers that I found. Um, I mean, these crossings were not reported in any official manner. Um, the official number of escapes over the whole inner German border remained around um, 100 mm-hmm. a year. So 100 people crossing this border, the length of Chicago to New Mexico, uh, to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, 100 people a year officially are crossing. But meanwhile, you have all these locals who are not getting reported. Right. And their records I found in the basement of the Neustadt police station. Mm-hmm. So they would cross the police would sort of send them back and not forward on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So were they still getting shot at any kind of rate? Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to trivialize um, the dangerousness of this. And a lot of these um, were sort of young junk kids or men who get in a fight with their wives. These were overwhelmingly men um, or they'd be in trouble with the law. And so they just, you know, in- impulsively cross the border. Um, yeah. A lot of them did um were severely injured and some even met their death, but a lot of them, like I said, who knew the terrain could cross and recross mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. without incident. And you know, I've actually encountered some um some flack for saying this, for pointing out sort of the subculture that was happening of, of border adventuring. And um mm-hmm. you know, I I really do not mean to trivialize how dangerous this border would have been to outsiders. I certainly couldn't have, have crossed it. But mm-hmm. um, I do think given the overemphasis we've had on how monolithic this border was, it's important to keep in mind that the very same people who were making this monolithic were at the same time subverting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. And so that's the irony. Yeah. 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 The, the numbers of crossings, though, really falls after 61, though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Okay. Yeah, what was I, like, well, that, oh, yeah. I was going to say, what was life like in this uh, security area? This was a very sensitive area. You know, I don't know if people know this, but uh, in many European states, and the Soviet Union was one of them, they have uh, an entire kind of police that does nothing but border security. We don't really have that here in the United States, so people are unfamiliar with it. I assume the East Germans had it as well, uh, and they had imposts. It was, again, heavily militarized. What was life like in this area? Um. Pretty grim. <laughs> Pretty grim. Um, there were two security zones. There was a five-kilometer security zone and a 500-meter security zone. 
the 500 meter security zone, um, really, there were strict curfews, um, nine o'clock at night in some places, um, bars were closed, any outdoor activities such as fishing, camping, um, hiking, things like this were extremely limited. You could not receive visitors um, um, without like this totally labyrinthine process of, of um, getting a day pass, which would take weeks. And um, so these people really did feel cut off from the world. You were supposed to be um, heavily involved in border security. As I mentioned, there were these volunteer border helpers. Um, ordinary people were expected to denounce outsiders who entered the area. So if you or I walked in, we were supposed to um, be reported. And um, the Stasi, in fact, would do tests and send, you know, people in into these regions, um, into these towns and see who reported them and would report people who didn't report them. Um, so people really had an incentive to, to participate. And in mm-hmm. fact, one of the more surprising things I found in the course of my research, most people were not caught by the fortifications at the border, but by um, people for their mm-hmm. inlets. So only 85% of people trying to escape, only 85% were caught at the fortifications by border troops. Mm-hmm. The rest were caught further inland, um, either by civilians or by sort of local or transport police. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of, again, part of the, the argument. It was people that made this thing function. It right, wasn't just, right. You know, some metal fencing. Right. Borders are made of people. I mean, they really are. If you think about it, they they really are made of people. The um, uh, and your book shows that quite well. So this was on the eastern side. Were there any similar restrictions on the western side? Could you walk up walk up to the fence and wave at the border guards? Yeah, you could walk up to the fence, and um, I mean, there's this whole culture that around that arises around the border. They they put benches next to the border. There were Tour groups that come. There's a whole, you know, border museum that begins. People walk their dogs along the border. They develop these sort of daily rituals, um, and so that that's really what's happening on the western side. The sort of uh, I wouldn't say fetishization of the border, but um, the Iron Curtain really becomes a symbol of totalitarianism mm-hmm. and um, is um, you know, commoditized in a way. There is a border cafe that becomes very popular for tourists. There's a border hotel. And um, that's really the, the dynamic on the western side, mm-hmm. where you gaze across the barbed wire at your lost brothers and sisters in the east. Well, what sort of interaction? Could you get a day pass to go across in this sort of 61 to 89 period? Could you? Is there any interaction at all? I mean, what, what was it? Was there yeah, any? So atten- yeah. yeah, so in the 60s, um, it's very difficult, very difficult to visit on the other side. After detente, um, 1972, um, you have the introduction of what's called um, small cross-border traffic, which means that people in border zones can get these day passes um, or frequent visas to the other side from west to east. It's Westerners. Um, mm-hmm. and so you could go up to nine times a quarter. And one of the interesting things that I found is that there were really high expectations of this, that um, this would really forge new ties between these communities that had been severed. But um, Western interest in traveling East really drops very quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a lot of problems when Westerners start day tripping to the East. Um, there's a lot of resentments around all the money they're spending. Um, 
even talking to relatives is very difficult. They're from, they feel like they're on two different planets. They really aren't connecting over um, how they even perceive the world. And so that this almost creates, the irony is that more contact is creating more alienation mm-hmm. um, and really kind of entrenching the sense of East and West. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost after detente, the idea of the permanence of division really, I think, comes into play in Westerners. Um, begin to kind of, yeah, really see themselves as mm-hmm. inhabitants. Mm-hmm. I want to ask one final question about the book, but I want to save a little time to ask you about how you teach this subject, because I, I, I understand it's very interesting. But my final question is this. What happened when the wall came down? <laughs> um, yeah, a new divide gets created. And this is related to what I was saying with the tent, that like this process of contacting um, and having these disappointed expectations um, does create a new sense of barrier and disappointment and disillusion, which, you know, and we all know this is the common narrative with reunification. So mm-hmm. right now, I'd say tensions between the towns are almost worse than they were during division. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of economic resentment, a lot of social resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were glad to see the, the wall fall. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Initially, there was this euphoria that everyone talks about. Um, and then, I mean, it's, it's it's a lot to get into at this at this point, but there are a lot of reasons why people are nostalgic for the way things yeah, had been. Yeah, yeah. Too. So you know this common story of dislocation and resentment. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about the way you teach this material. Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things that um, the theme of the book is how much mentalities are malleable and the extent to which mentalities matter, and. Um, it, and it's, as I said, the idea that this wall in the head really does propel the wall on the ground and. Um, yeah, one of the things I try to convey in my teaching by doing this is um, in my German survey course, the first week every student gets assigned a character at random. Um, then they're just given one sentence. Everyone's born in 1900. Mm-hmm. And they, um, like, you are the son of a prostitute in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Or you are the daughter of a Jewish banker in Munich. And in order to um, kind of reconstruct how people might have thought at the time, they have this character throughout the quarter and have complete control over their own life choices. Mm -hmm. And so they get these weekly prompts, um, you know, did you vote for Hitler? Why or why not? And then in order to answer that question, they need to kind of reconstruct, okay, what was, what were mentalities at the time? What would someone in my um, position have thought, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and you have people really able to explore topics of their own interest through this. Another mm-hmm. student was really interested in um, German colonialism and sent her character to, you know, German Southwest Africa and mm-hmm. um, really able to kind of see or imagine firsthand how um, mentalities contributed to the decisions that they were making. Mm-hmm. It's interesting uh, because... And, and, uh, oh, I was gonna, go ahead. I was going to say it's interesting because one of the things that uh, I've thought of doing and I haven't done in the Western survey here in Iowa, almost everybody can uh, trace themselves back to Europe in some sense. Uh, so I've thought about having everybody trace their genealogy because it's pretty easy to find people who you're related to into the 1800s and sort of start with somebody mm-hmm. and trace the history of your ancestors and bring them over. It's a similar sort of thing because the, the basic idea that I had is that people are mostly interested in themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely plays off this. So it's interesting you say that because so the second time I taught this class, the first time I just made it random, the second time um, 
the students had the option of choosing their birthplace and circumstances, uh-huh. and a lot of them did what you're saying. Yeah. They um, located their characters in, you know, Danzig or wherever yeah. their um, ancestors were from, and then were able to then talk to their grandparents. And, yeah. And like you're saying, I think playing to self-interest in the self really does work yeah. out because these students wound up writing about 1,100 words a week. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, Did you have to read all those words? <laughs> well, I had the help of um, a teaching assistant. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were writing four and a half to five pages a week, yeah. even including the week of the midterm, et cetera, because these were sort of diary-ish entries. Yep. Oh, what do you think about the Berlin Wall? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, yeah. So okay. I think that there's a lot to be said about, like, giving students ownership. Yeah. To that extent, over. Also, I mean, I think yeah. if you actually do trace somebody you're, you're related to, I yeah. mean, related to you have something to take home at Thanksgiving and show your parents. Like, look, I found this out about right. our family, and that you know that kind of show and tell is very good not only for education but also for what the deans call development. You know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> like, look, my son well, or daughter's actually learning something. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure some of your students could also rummage around attics, yeah, right? They could. Find, Absolutely. You know, yeah. photos. Right. The, best of, the, the best of them will do that. Uh, also, the, the course reminds me a little bit of a, of a movie. I think it was a TV show, actually. I am hesitant to call it a movie or TV show because it is the longest thing ever made. It is called Heimat. Have you watched this thing? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. Has anybody watched, watched the whole thing? I, 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 no, I, no, no. For our listeners, Heimat was, um, well, it traces the history of a, a German community, a small, uh, I guess it's a, a small, um, it's a village, really, uh, throughout the 20th century. And the thing is like, uh, I don't know how long it is now, 50 hours or something? Yeah. It's, a, it's ungodly long. I think I've watched, I don't know, 20 hours of it or something like that. Oh, it's impressive. Though. Oh, it's, a, it's extraordinarily impressive. <laughs> I don't think anything could be ever done like it in the United States, but it's a, it is very impressive. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's worth watching if you're interested in sort of, I guess, modern German history. And, and uh, it's a, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed watching it until I couldn't watch it anymore because I, yeah. Um, it turns out that, that, that everyday life really isn't that dramatic. <laughs> you know, it's not like, it's not oh, like a soap yeah, opera. <laughs> I would say, I would say it's the incremental nature of astonishing change. Yeah. Well, it is very incremental. That is, that is exactly <laughs> right. Incremental. Yeah. Well, I can tell you my life is yeah so incremental that I can't begin to tell you the, um, so anyway, Edith, we, I really enjoyed talking to you today about the book. The yeah. book is burned bridge. How, East and West Germans made the Iron Curtain, the so-called, I think we're going to have to start calling it the so-called Iron Curtain after your book. I'm going to insist that everybody do that, the so-called Iron Curtain. Um, Our final, uh, traditional final question on New Books in History is this, and I'd like you to answer it. What are you working on now? Um, I am working on um, switching gears a little bit, the invention of the autism diagnosis by Hans Asperger in Vienna during the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. I didn't, actually, so, I didn't know that's when it was invented. I didn't know Asperger's was related to autism in that way. Yeah, he was the first um, person to actually use the term autism in really? 1938. And, um, yeah, so he his publication is from 1944. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, which yeah, <laughs> to me, of course, raises eyebrows. And yeah. um, I've, I've just begun to dip into the archives, and it turns out, you know, this was a time um, Vienna was a large center for um, the killing of disabled children, uh-huh. which, you know, the, yep. the euthanasia program, mm-hmm. right? T4. And, yep. Um, yep. and um, it turns out, actually, um, Asperger was pretty complicit in this program mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, 
had transferred, was involved in the transferring of children from his clinic, some of whom to Spiegelgrund, which is where um, the children were murdered. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. he was a racial eugenicist. He was deemed um, in agreement with racial hygiene policy. And um, anyway, there's there's de- definitely to reread the Asperger's diagnosis through this eugenicist history is, is interesting. And I mm-hmm. think... Um, this might be a smaller piece on why to do away with the Asperger's diagnosis, hmm. suggesting that it's been defined it's um, or he, he defined it through the lens of this eugenicist history. I don't know. I'm going to say something that I'm, probably people are going to really object to right now. So, okay, no, please. So, yeah. so those of you who are listening, you may turn off, uh, you may stop this episode. I'm about to say something that you might find objectionable. I, my wife is a mathematician and I know a lot of mathematicians. And I got to tell you, uh, in my world, Asperger's is real. Um, I, 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 uh, I can, I've, I've seen it and, uh, it's very prevalent among mathematicians. I don't know why. Oh, no, no, I'm not I, saying no it's idea. not real. Yeah. I'm saying that it's, a, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not saying it's not real. My own son, you know, I, I know this, um, yeah. I'm saying it could be dissolved into yeah. the autism. Yeah, it might be. Is autism spectrum yeah. is what I think, I think, yeah, is what, is what yeah, it's yeah. called it's now. A, so what I'm trying to say is it's a false category, yeah. um, and that Asperger, Overemphasize the positive aspects of the diagnosis, huh. calling these children savants and little professors. Oh yeah, no, yeah, right, no, you, and you so still get some of that. Yeah, you still yeah, get so some Asperger's, of that. Yeah, no, yeah, Asperger's has this kind of cachet. Yeah, and at least in the circles I'm in, um, parents often want to believe their children are Asperger's. Yeah, it is not a happy not, thing. That's that's no, yeah. and not autistic. <laughs> yeah. And what happens is that yeah. if a child has an Asperger's label, they don't receive state services. Right. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. And so, yeah. Right, right, right. And if a child has an autism label, they do receive state services. So um, in my mind, sort of the cachet of the Asperger's diagnosis prevents these children. From I've had in the past a couple of students with Asperger's, and as I say, it is not a happy thing for them. No. It, it is not happy no. in any way. So, um, no, and, yeah. but Asperger's made it sound like these yeah. are supermen, and yeah. they're not. Really? I didn't know that. That's so very interesting. Is, yeah. yeah, so the question is, well, why did he see them as supermen? That's very interesting. <laughs> selecting out the lower-functioning children. Yeah. So right. anyway, this is... Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I know a little bit about the biography of Conrad Lorenz, who, you know, he he is uh, uh, he has a similar sort of story. He was a Nazi, basically. Oh. And then he gets cleaned up at, <laughs> after the war. You should look into that. So Lorenz is a very interesting character. He's also in psychology. What did he do? Well, okay. Conrad Lorenz, he was a, a, one of the original ethologists. He was people that he was a, a he really studied um, animal behavior and animal uh, psychology. And he was um, uh, the, the, the person that's that that uh, discovered what's called imprinting. And that is when, you know, so he raised some geese and the geese thought he was uh, mom. Right. Come that around. Oh. And, and, you know, he became very an important um, psychologist after the war. Uh, but uh, he did a nice job of cleaning up his own um, background. And uh, yeah, he, he did. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, yeah, he, um, yeah, he, he did a nice job of cleaning up his background, but I'm sure I'm going to get hate mail about that too, from people that love Conrad Lorenz. But in any event, I think these are absolutely fascinating projects, how people remake themselves and how these diagnoses are create created. And, and actually we did a book on the show, uh, a little while back, um, about actually it wasn't on this show. It was on, I think it was on new books in African American studies about a fellow who, studied the history of the, uh, the invention of schizophrenia, hmm. at least in the American context. And what he points out is it's overwhelmingly uh, directed at and defined by black men in the 1960s. 
Huh. That yeah, that, that at the moment, well, in the moment in which civil rights, you know, abuse the uppity black people, you know, and they they, they were uh, they'd get involved in in sort of various civil rights things and they crime and they sent psychologists and the psychologists would say, well, these people are schizophrenic, uh, and so th- this guy argues that this is a very it's a heavily racialized um, diagnosis that that it's a uh, it was sort of unconsciously uh, racialized yeah. diagnosis, but I mean these are sort of interesting parallel things and sounds like a fascinating project to me i can't wait to read it well, so we'll be we'll be done next week that was uh, a joke that was a joke yeah well yeah. you know actually <laughs> i don't think this will be a book that i mean if you're, if you're asking seriously the dsm-5 is coming out oh really in 2003 yeah and um clinically the american psychiatric association wants to dissolve the asperger's oh, really? diagnosis uh-huh. into yeah. autism uh-huh but there's apparently a lot of resistance within oh. the Asperger's community really? who doesn't want to suddenly be labeled autistic. Yeah. Well. And so, I mean, this this would be kind of a an article, a non-scholarly article saying, hey, there are real reasons, <laughs> social reasons to dissolve this because it's been defined with this ideal of Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's really a false category. It's really interesting. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. fascinating. Well, anyway, I, um, I okay. could talk about this stuff forever. Edith, thank you very yeah, much yeah. for being on the show. The book is Burned so Bridge. How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. Um, Thank you very much again for being on the show, Edith. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Edith Sheffer about her new book, Burned Bridge, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.